Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest, a legend, a, a cultural uh, zeitgeist shifter uh, from the band Bratmobile, from the zine Girls Germs, from the band Party Line, from countless other incredible projects, the great Allison Wolf is on the podcast this week. And trust me, this is one you do not want to miss. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. And he will get the message to me. But this episode... Once again, we got to thank the great Toby Vale for the assist on because Toby definitely vouched for this podcast. And uh, so thank you, Toby, for the, that. Uh, and you can send the message to Tristan. That message will get to me. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Left for Damien. There's an Instagram page, a Facebook page, a TikTok page, all for this podcast. All can be found at Turned Out a Punk on their respective platforms. And uh, you will find video content. And uh, other such things, posts about the show, whatnot, and what have you. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it. Subscribing to it on your platform of choice is also something that I like to have happen. Uh, you can rate it as well. And thank you to everyone who does do that. Uh, I play in a band. We are called Fucked Up. You can find out more information over at fuckedup.cc. Not... I can't say it what's happening yet, but we got some stuff to announce coming up in the fall, but we're on, we're on a break for a little bit. So, you know, um, but speaking of announcements, I got some big announcements coming, big announcements coming for Turn Out of Punk uh, next week on the show too. Uh, it's not going to be a, it's gonna be a hot summer. And I know every time someone says that it just turns out to be a terrible mistake. So I take it back. It's, it's not going to be a hot summer. I'm not going to, I'm not going to camera on myself with this one. But I'm going to have some announcements uh, next week for this show. All right. But that is it for teases and and promos and whatnot. On to today's episode. As I said off the top, today on the show, the legend Allison Wolf, of course, of the incredibly important Girls Germ fanzine and of the band Bratmobile and of the band Party Line and of the band Sex Stains, of the band Cold Cold Hearts and Deep Lust and, and Cliquey Bitches and, 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 and probably more. Um, probably, probably a lot more. Metal Church. Yep, vocals on Metal Church. We talked about that in the show. Not a member of the band, though. She wanted me to make that abundantly clear. But as I said off the top, a legend. And if you want to see Allison with her legendary band, Bratmobile, they are reuniting for the first time in like 21 years on July 2nd at the um, Mosswood. Yeah, Mosswood Meltdown. Sorry, my glasses are a little, a little dirty. On July 2nd, uh, they're also going to be playing with La Tigra and Gravy Train and, and other bands. And it's going to be an incredible show. I wish I was going to be there because... I love Bratmobile, as you'll hear on the show. I kind of, you know, ramble on endlessly a little bit about Bratmobile at various times because they're a band that I've I've always had a soft spot for. I've always heard, you know, the punk side of it. There's there's like the cool twee stuff we talk about as well that's there too, and it's super scrappy and in your face. They're just like one of those all time great bands. 
And yeah, as, as also I tell Allison on this podcast, I acquired Carolyn from Fifth Column Zine Collection a couple years ago. And in there was a letter from Allison to Carolyn and talking about how important uh, her Cal- Carolyn's work and Fifth Column's work is to Girls Germs and, and by extension her friends and, and Riot Girl and sort of this group that was kind of forming at the time. And, you know, it's just been something I've always wanted to have uh, talked about. And so here we are talking about it on here. Uh, shout out to the mutual homie Danko Jones. And that's it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Allison Wolf on Turned Out a Punk. Allison, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm excited. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry I put it off for so long. I've just been like sick or had some physical situation since New Year's Day. Well, I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that, but I'm I'm glad we finally made it happen because like, yeah, I'm obviously a huge fan of Bratmobile, but years ago I bought Carolyn from Fifth Column Zine Collection off. So I, I, I'm a huge Girl Germs fan too, and I'm very excited to talk oh. to you about that. And actually, weirdly, I even got a letter that you wrote to Carolyn in one of the zines way back when. And uh, I think it's on the back of, I don't know, it's, it's like one of the first Riot Girl. I guess events, right? Because it's like Jack Acid and Heaven's Betsy. Oh, at Ancola, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So <laughs> anyway, I'm I'm a huge nerd, as you can tell. So this is I've got physical artifacts that I wanted to talk to you about too. That's so crazy. I want all her scenes. Well, you know, do you, I love um, what was it called? Three dollar bill. Have yeah, you read that? Oh. Amazing, amazing zine. And then also, there's like there was just so many interesting sort of experimental things that were coming out of that. Oh, wait, Double Bill. I'm sorry. Double Bill. Yeah, exactly. Double Bill. I'm like three. But yeah, um, Double Bill, which I love. The Bill Conrad loving Bill Burroughs hating fancy. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. And they also had, I'm trying to remember now, I'm blanking on the name, but the one where they're interviewing people about getting beaten up. The one that they had Bruce Bruce on the cover with a black eye in one issue. And then, um, but it was just people's. JD's or no, I guess. No, no, JD's was, yeah, JD's was Bruce's one. Yeah, it was just like such a, I don't know, such an amazing group. And to find out there's this connection to everything that's going on in Olympia and and DC, it it was like, you know, filled my Canadian heart with pride back then. You know, we've got an inferiority complex, as I'm sure you know. You've got Canadian connections. Yeah, I do. I do. But no, I know. I've always felt like there's so much amazing stuff going on in Canada and that, Canadians have had to work so hard to get just even a little bit of recognition, but usually the stuff is pretty brilliant, pretty awesome in every way. So yeah, the whole fifth column crew, um, they just, they were so brilliant. Those zines are so brilliant. Fifth column, the music is so amazing and mm-hmm. just really undersung and, and, and all the films that GB Jones made. Oh, it's just amazing. Yeah, like that's the uh, well. Anyway, we'll get to this. This isn't uh, this isn't about fifth column. I'm sure they'll come up again. I want to though start this off, Allison, the way they all start off, which is how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? Yeah, it's kind of a weird story, but um, I was um, going out with this jock, this Letterman in high school, my freshman year, and um, I wasn't really a jock, but you know, I don't know. I guess I just thought I had it made, you know, because I was going out with this upperclassman, and he actually had a car. And would drive me places because my mom would never drive us anywhere 
And he would take me out to dinner. And my mom also, she couldn't afford to really take us out to dinner hardly ever and things like that. So I was like, woohoo. But then I, you know, I started realizing pretty quickly that he was controlling and really leave it to Beaver old fashioned values and things like that. And um, I do remember one time he took me to dinner, brought me home. He was on the swim team, had to get up early the next day, like Saturday morning or whatever. And um, my sister, I have a twin sister, and she was waiting at home for me. And she was like, great, you're home. Now we're going to go to the party down the street. And I was like, okay. And then I remember that he found out that I went to the party after he dropped me off. I mean, I'm sure I told him or one of his friends told him or something uh, next time I talked to him. But he was so mad. He just said, when I bring you home from a date, you're home for the night. And <laughs> I just was, I just didn't even get it because my household was so kind of wild with no rules. I mean, I grew up with a lesbian feminist mom. Um, we are all loudmouths and storytellers and everything and just no rules. I mean, really, the only rules were like, okay, you can't eat Domino's pizza because they support, you know, Operation Rescue anti-abortion stuff. And I don't know, don't disturb me or don't wake me up when I'm sleeping kind of thing, something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I so I just was like, OK, this is weird. I got to break up with this guy. And then I remember when he came over uh, that whatever next weekend or something, I broke up with him and um, I'm sure I wasn't smooth about it, but he was really mad. And my sister and my best friend were in the next room and they were kind of laughing about something. And he thought that they were laughing about us breaking up or that I told them something. And he picked me up by the collar, held me up against the wall and was, don't laugh at me. It's blah, blah, whatever, you know, yelling at me and then dropped me and ran out of the house. He grabbed a pot off the stove, threw it across the room, Holy broke. Shit. Yeah. It's just really, you know, violent outburst thing. And the, uh, handle broke off the pot put a hole in the wall went into the wall and um yeah so, so something you know my mom was not home luckily he owes his life to that fact um but i just something in me snapped and i didn't have the language to be like oh this is domestic violence or whatever or you know abuse and things like that but i just was like this is a jock doing bad things. <laughs> I can't be a part of this culture anymore or mainstream culture or something. So I think even just that weekend, I called up like a friend of mine, Christina Calle, who was punk. And then my other friend, Carla Olvenis, who was new wave. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, I'm hanging out with you guys now. <laughs> and I started new wave. So I was in the subculture of new wave first. You know, I go to the the Capitol Mall and go to the half, you know, half price pizza nights that all the waivers would hang out at. And then at some point through high school, I kind of graduated to punk and was going to like punk parties and punk shows and things like that. So I, I think I heard on another podcast, you describe your dad as being in a punk or being a punk rocker in a way is it, it, like maybe just in reference, like you said he was a Republican, but he was ultimately pro-choice. And oh yeah, punk. he's not punk. <laughs> Let's okay, okay, <laughs> not punk. But well, my dad, he is a Republican. He grew up in you know the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. Yeah, and um, you know he's had a you know kind of wild life in various ways. He was wild in the seventies, smoked pot, all this stuff. He probably won't admit now. Um, but yeah, he you know he was a doctor, so yeah, he understands science, and mm. so he's pro-choice. He's very pro-mask, pro-vaccine. 
you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, every now and then I'll ask them, well, okay, but you vote for all these people who don't believe in that stuff. Oh, well, they're idiots, whatever, you know, I don't know. You know, there's no really rationalizing it. But I will say that my dad and mom, they met in Memphis, Tennessee in the 60s. And my dad used to go see Ike and Tina Turner play many weekends because they were the house band at a club called Paradise. Or, and, and still to this day, I'm just like, oh, so jealous. Wow. <laughs> that would have been an incredible performance. Well, that's because I only asked that because, you know, I've also heard you talk about your mom on other podcasts and she seems... Uh, or seemed sorry rest in peace unbelievable and and like a incredibly cool person but was the music she into kind of like because there's a lot of cool stuff happening in the pacific northwest around that time kind of in the proto-punk kind of world was she into that kind of stuff at all or was his music kind of completely separate from the the other cool stuff she was doing well she was into music but she was more into kind of like folk stuff and mm -hmm. country and stuff like that so she was really into olivia records which is like a lesbian feminist record label so a lot of um folk kind of lesbian folk singers from from that like is it Teresa troll is it meg christian i think her name is and um i don't know people like that and so uh, she was really into Melvina Reynolds, you know, Little Boxes, um, Hazel Dickens and Alice Gerard, Feminist Bluegrass from the 70s. Um, I mean, they're from earlier, but she had the 70s records of theirs. And um, Joan Baez, for sure. Big time Joan Baez. So we grew up with all these records like that. Emmylou Harris, Patsy Cline, all that. Um, but, you know, it's, so I was more like, OK, I knew about Joan Baez, but I didn't know about bob dylan right mm, mm. so it was an interesting you know take really so what kind of music were you into prior to this sort of punk awareness like were you rebelling i guess in a way by trying to like like you say that was the end of your kind of flirtation with mainstream culture um was that a way of like trying to like rebel against your parents like my parents were super into drugs and i was straight edge and now i realized like oh yeah i had to rebel in my way before I ultimately came back to weed, but you know, being around that kind of thing, like this was my way of rejecting it. Was that something that was happening prior to punk? Well, I don't want to say exactly that I was rebelling against my mom and stuff like that, but, but I think you're right. Like if you have quote unquote, cool parents, you got to rebel somehow, or you just have to find your own way. Right. And do it your own way. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, I mean, in a way, yeah, it was. But I think more than that, rebelling against my mom, I was rebelling against mainstream culture. And I definitely recognized that my mom wasn't really part of mainstream culture. So, you know, like that wasn't a problem. Um, but yeah, you just have to find your own way and find things that are, that are cool, whatever. But I mean, I was really into like folk music too in high school, but you know, the political stuff. Um, but yeah, I really liked all the kind of, um, well, I was kind of more into new wave at first, like maybe, you know, I don't know, well, middle school and beginning of high school, but because also actually there were a lot more women in music in new wave. I felt like at least with the stuff I knew, you know, so it's like you had Bow Wow Wow, who I loved, super goofy, but, uh, but really interesting too. And actually political lyrics really by her last album. And, um, you know, Blondie and the Go-Go's and B-52's, Joan Jett. Um, so all those kind of things that were accessible, you know, and then Patti Smith at some point. And, um, so that was kind of a gateway for me, but still it, those musicians, 
I love them and I found it really interesting, but it didn't really make me feel like I could do it too. Cause mm -hmm. it was mainstream releases and stuff like that. Um, mainstream culture to, to a certain extent. But um, yeah, so it was more like seeing DIY punk, like bands creating their own music in my hometown. And I did grow up in Olympia, Washington. And so I guess I was lucky, but to be there at that time in the late 80s, early 90s, coming of age. And, you know, everything was so much more regional then. You know, we didn't have the internet or social media or whatever. And um, so you're, it was kind of like hometown heroes. That's who you saw. And I was just lucky that mine were like, you know, we got to see the Melvins fairly often, you know, or, um, and Nirvana, but actually Nirvana wasn't called Nirvana yet when I saw them in high school. They were um, called Skid Row, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, because they were the Klingons first, right? Or that was at least what they were called, uh, I guess. I've always heard. It, maybe. I mean, because they're from Aberdeen and mm -hmm. the Melvins are too, right? So like, but Olympia was the nearest bigger town, you know, where bands would come play. Um, but I'm pretty sure I saw the first Nirvana show in Olympia and it for sure was the first night I stayed out to see a show on a school night and and it was like um it, they were called Skid Row at that point so <laughs> it is you know it's, it's like a big town obviously Olympia and, and Aberdeen is you know much smaller but like ultimately these are pretty small places you think about the amount of culture that comes out of it during that little period that you know it's just changes everything it's 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 kind of mind-boggling yeah, it's it, it is weird because I spent a lot of the time just wishing I could be in Seattle or something and oh what I grew up in this rain well it's all rainy but Olympia meh, you know and um, <laughs> but you know ultimately I was lucky there was a lot going on there actually Olymp so. yeah because Olympia had like what are the blackouts from there like I know there was like some new wave and kind of punk stuff coming out of there early on right oh I don't know like I mean. There's a lot that I, I don't know about, but I mean, some of my earliest stuff, I mean, it's not that early, I suppose, but you know, there's like beat happening mm -hmm. and the go team, not the go team that people, some people might know about, but the one from Olympia and Toby Vale was in all these bands like before Bikini Kill. So she was in an all girl band Doris and it was all these girls who they were skaters too. So they'd skate around and be in a band and um, Donna Dresch. Um, who, you know, later Team Drash and stuff. She was playing bass in various bands. Uh, Danger Mouse was one of them. Also at Olympia, Danger Mouse. There was, we also had our own band called Lush, you know, <laughs> not the British Lush. <laughs> yeah. So, But, you know, pre-internet, you can just look up your band name and make sure someone else didn't have it. <laughs> but, well, yeah, and I guess this could be, uh, you know, uh, Lush Olympia in the Ruts DC kind of fashion. Yeah. It's... It, it, and there's also like even prior to that, there's that band China Comitas, I think, are from maybe Seattle or, or Olympia area, too. Um, they're just like a uh, like not necessarily, I guess, a proto riot girl band. But I, I remember talking to Toby about it and she was like talking about how she would heard it through, I guess, one of Calvin's tapes. Like, it seems like Calvin's tapes, even by the I, when I first went to Olympia, which is until like the mid 2000s, you could still buy tapes that Calvin was making and selling at the record store there. And it was unbelievable stuff, like all genres too. Oh yeah, his record collection was amazing. Yeah, so influential on the music scene. I mean, cause it used to be, you'd have to go into each other's apartments and listen to their records. And that's how you found out about new things. 
Um, but Calvin would make mixtapes for people. And I remember he made uh, Molly Newman, who was in Bratmobile later. Um, early on, he made us a mixtape and we brought it on tour and road trips and stuff. And it's funny because I didn't realize he was selling these mixtapes years later. And yeah, one time I was in a car with my neighbor when I lived in DC from DC and he was playing that mixtape <laughs> and I, and we'd lost it years ago. And I was like, Oh my God, Oh my God, you found my tape. What? You know? And he's like, no, I bought this off Kelvin. And I was like, what? So you don't feel quite as special when you realize it's been reproduced, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you were the original inspiration for it, you know? And it's... <laughs> <laughs> or he, at least, yeah, we, he felt like we needed it. I'm sure. Um, it, it, it's so ahead of the game too. It's like proto playlists in that way that you're like making something for one person, but ultimately it's for anyone who kind of stumbles across it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's amazing. I mean, and I, I won't name names, but I know people who used to steal records from him and that really pissed me off. It's mm -hmm. like, no, come on. Like he shares this with us really generously. Like we, we need to maintain his library. So. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's also so different of a time where this kind of stuff was it, it, it you know like you wouldn't find this information unless you were in someone's house you know and these records this might be the only time you would ever hear this song because these things weren't necessarily all comped or certainly weren't all on youtube yeah yeah true uh, yeah it was amazing and you know, but it also made it, I guess, a little bit harder to find out about things maybe that I was more interested in. Well, like women in punk and girls in punk and stuff like that. Um, so sometimes we just weren't aware of exactly who our foremothers were. You know, you find out along the way and you'd find out at someone's apartment, usually Toby's or or uh, Kathleen's or someone, you know, Um and, you know, people like Donna Dress, a lot of people would turn us on to music, but it was funny because every now and then we'd be like, there's no girls. And people would be like, yeah, there are. Look at here, 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 here. Um, and it doesn't mean that we really felt like no one came before us. It's just that we didn't have a lot of access to that. And that history was somewhat obscured, you know. Yeah. And I think that's the what you're saying makes complete sense that you wouldn't just because something existed in the world. It doesn't mean it's given its proper place and people are kind of taught about it as canon in the way that they're taught about, you know, like, and, and not to undermine how amazing these bands are because they both are unbelievably important bands, but X-Ray Specs and the Slits weren't the only two women punk bands yet. If you were to read traditional punk rock histories, that's the only two bands that are discussed when they talk about UK punk, it seems involving women. Right. And and lucky if they even mentioned them. Right. Because mm -hmm. you have that example of like uh, Viv Albertine being at the uh, I think it was the British Library, um, some exhibit, you know, that was about punk. And she wrote had to write on the wall or something. Where are the women? You know, mm. and so, yeah, it's amazing. You know, I think it was, you know, on a technicality, like they said, oh, we the cutoff year was. I guess right before their records came out or something, but it's like, well, expand the year then, you know, come mm -hmm. on. Yeah. So. Or dig, or dig deeper because I'm sure there were, you know, like it's one of these things that like, like, like you're saying, it's always there. It's just never acknowledged in the way that it, it properly was. And that's what I think I kind of love going through the fifth column zines um, and, and Bruce LaBruce's stuff with JD's because you kind of have this uh, hodgepodge of 
culture that's being assembled as people are kind of finding out about stuff and especially with the Bruce LeBruce stuff, like reclaiming homophobic songs and turning them into songs that are like, no, no, we're making this a, a, a pro gay song, not an anti-gay song in the case of some of these bands, you know, like in sort of this, I don't know, it's it's sort of beautiful. Like it, it, there's an art to that, you know, like an art of collage that's going on. And I, and then you see it obviously as well with girl germs and, and things like bikini kill and, and stuff that Toby's doing where you're kind of like assembling a history out of what you can kind of find. Yeah. Yeah. Our fanzines and flyers and, and songs even like mm -hmm. I used to quote even like Johnny Cash or Bow Wow Wow or whatever in my songs. And I mean, I probably wouldn't do it or I don't do it quite as often now just because you're like, oh, well, now everyone knows or I don't want people to think that I think I wrote that lyric or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> but but yeah, you're right. It was every postmodernism or something, you know, so big in the 90s and you're right we were collaging everything you know it's like you are kind of the sum of your influences really so what was the first concert you ever went to it doesn't have to be punk um big country oh wow <laughs> i know right yeah um i it was wasn't long after we got mtv on whatever channel in um olympia i remember and uh, my sister, my, my twin sister, Cindy, who lives in Toronto, Canada, by the way, um, we were just, you know, watching, you know, this close to the TV, watching MTV. And um, in a big country, that song was, that video was on a lot. And I think we had the Rocket, the weekly paper, the uh, music paper, whatever that came out of Seattle. And we were flipping through it. And it said that big country was going to play on November 9th. I think it was 1983, but I don't know. Um, but it was our 13th birthday. So um, we just took the paper. It's like, mom, <laughs> can we go to this for our birthday? And it was just the first time we even just thought about going to a concert. So we're like, oh, and I think she was like, huh? Uh, okay. You know, um, but she's like, I'm not going though. So she was like, I'll drive you there. So her and her girlfriend drove us up to Seattle and just dropped us off at the Moore Theater. Just said, okay, have fun, you know, your with your tickets. Um, and I'll, I'm going to go have dinner with friends and I'll come pick you up later. Um, so yeah, it was fun. And then she came back. Well, I, you know, it was interesting because I think I remember us and a gaggle of other kids our age were all in the alley outside the tour bus trying to see the band afterwards. And then finally, uh, someone who worked at the venue came out and said, hey, um, the band is in the lobby waiting to sign autographs and no one's in there. You're all out here. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't realize that, you know, it was small enough that they could have, you know, we could have just met them right there. Yeah. So we're like, oh, what? And everyone runs back in and we meet them. And I think my sister kissed Stuart Adamson's hand or, or bit it maybe. Something weird <laughs> happened something happened where my mom was like god damn it and dragged us away but <laughs> i don't know it's only when you're in a band do you realize how weird some of the interactions you had with musicians were when you were a kid like just yeah. how strange these people must have thought you were as a as a young person or in this case your sister i guess yeah well i remember seeing like in excess too like early on in seattle and we brought packets of sugar maybe it wasn't early on because um Oh, wait, is it in excess? Oh, no, wait. No, no. Is that Echo and the Bunnymen? Wait, who does the Lips Like Sugar song? Oh, man, I don't know. This I is really stop me. I only know okay, everyone, you gotta, <laughs> okay, you have to edit it. So I'm no, either going to say Echo and the Bunnymen 
or an ex I think it's um, Echo and the Bunny one. Anyways, but and that it's probably later on. But we brought sugar packets, and we were thought that was so cool to throw them during that song. It's like how dumb. Anyways. I know it's kind of awesome though. Like that's the you realize. I know, and I think it's just through doing the show now. I realize that you know you need to be a little bit of a punisher to be the person that winds up in the band. You know, you need to have that kind of like level of enthusiasm that's kind of annoying for a band to deal with that ultimately will propel you to be the person on that stage right because you're passionate about it like these are the passionate people that wind up making this stuff later on yeah yeah i mean we're all fans right yeah absolutely so what was the first sort of diy show you remember going to and how did you kind of get exposed to that side of things Oh God, now I have to try to remember. Um, first DIY show. Mm -mm -mm. Would have been that Nirvana show, I guess, or, or was I mean, that was, I mean, that was an early one, but I still think I was like a junior in high school then. So I must have, or maybe senior, I must have gone to something earlier. I mean, I do remember going to um, Tacoma to see shows. So there was a venue called Community World Theater in the mid and late 80s. Um, that was really a place, a meeting point, uh, between Olympia and Seattle. And um, I think a lot of people don't realize that the Seattle scene in some ways didn't always exist or wasn't always able to thrive because of these strict Seattle city ordinances that were basically the dance ordinances, teen dance ordinances. So you had to be 18 to go to some venue that had live music or dancing. And I mean, cops would card at the door at a lot of these places, places that didn't even have alcohol on the premises at all. And you still had to be 18 just to dance or whatever. So all these new wave dance clubs were shutting down and punk clubs too. So people kind of had to go to Tacoma to go see a lot of bands. So I just, the bands I remember seeing there would be, yeah, like the Melvins, Skid Row, No Means No, they came through a lot. Um, SNFU, they came through. Um, so Strong Canadian just, connection. Yeah. Sorry, didn't yeah. care. Well, yeah, because, you know, we're bordering Canada. I mean, not the state is mm -hmm. <laughs> not the town but yeah so real regional really northwest well and it, it feels like like his girl troubles from tacoma too right oh yeah yeah i forgot okay okay girl trouble was my favorite band okay i'm just gonna say that so yeah i saw girl trouble all the time and so that was probably the band that made the biggest impression on me locally um there was a uh, some olympia bands like i said danger mouse lush um at some point be happening but yeah be happening and um, who else? There were some Tacoma bands. I don't know. Um, Nisqually Delta Podunk Nightmare. That was a band. So where were you getting? Because like, uh, like the thing I love about Bratmobile, especially the early stuff, is kind of like the, I don't know, it's like a, 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 the UK kind of twee almost five of like shop assistants and, and dolly mixtures and Vaselines and all those sorts of bands. Where was that influence for you kind of coming from or were you hearing those were you hearing those records early on and is that an unconscious thing or well I, it's really funny you bring that up because actually i bought those records when i started university so i didn't really hear those things until i started college but that still was like 1989 fall but I remember going to, I believe it was called House of Records in Eugene, Oregon. I went to University of Oregon for two years. And I remember buying a shop assistance record and a Vaseline's record. 
Um, and I didn't buy stuff very often because I didn't have hardly any money. And I didn't really have a sense of that kind of record collecting ownership either at that time, because my sister and I didn't really own many records either, like in middle school or high school. We would just tape them off other people. And we thought we were, we were really pulling one over, you know, on the man. Like, yeah, we're taping everyone's records. We don't have to pay for it. But then, you know, years later, you're like, wait, I don't have anything to show for it. And now those <laughs> records are so expensive. But so I am I am really proud of myself for even buying those records because they're my, my most prized possessions now. And I know that Kurt Cobain was trying to get that Vaseline EP off of me for years. All these different dude punks around were like, hey, you know, Kurt, really, I, I know you really like Nirvana and, you know, Kurt really wants that Vaseline's record. And I was like, oh, yeah, I like Nirvana, but I like the Vaseline's better. <laughs> <laughs> and no way. I'm not that dumb. I'm not giving this record up to some guy. Come on. When uh, John Brandon was on the show, he said the story where um, Kurt stayed at his house when Nirvana was on tour on Bleach. And was going through his records and found a lead belly 10 inch and he's like can, uh, can you put this on for me and he's like yeah yeah and he's like here i want to play the he's like oh man i'll play you this song he's like laughing hyenas are going to cover this and play where did you sleep last night and he's like the next thing i know he's covering it on mtv <laughs> oh man <laughs> well I think Laughing Hyenas did it better, probably. <laughs> or I, I, they would do an amazing version. I don't think they. I don't think he did it they afterwards. It. But I. I still think. Yeah, he's my Sinatra. His voice, I think, just gets better. It's amazing. I, he just. I don't know. He. It, well, I. I just love the song "Black Eyed Susan." <laughs> yes. And and whatever. It just. Yeah, it's amazing. So I don't know. It just rips your guts out or something. <laughs> so what were the first zines you you were exposed to? Um, probably like Jigsaw that Toby did and Chainsaw that Donna Dresch did. So I, I definitely had those zines. Um, but a lot of that stuff that we really dove or I really dove into by like in 89, like right before going to college and then during college, that's when I really, I think I just had more confidence to dive into the scene because, you know, I, I used to be kind of a bit of a wallflower at punk shows. I didn't, they were violent, you know, and I didn't want random dudes stage diving on my head to get a concussion or worse. You know, I'd seen people split their heads open stage diving because there weren't enough people to catch them. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> it was the Northwest was kind of sleepy back then. Um, you know, it was before we had all the like, you know, Microsoft and Starbucks was just one shop and whatever. And uh, we had Boeing and logging. So. Were, were, like, were there um, any connections to bands like Brotherhood and sort of that side of the scene, I guess, like Resolution and, and uh, those types of bands? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, so Molly Newman, who's a drummer in Bratmobile, who I met at University of Oregon, she was kind of more into those bands. She was a little, and she was also a little bit more kind of like straight edge and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, Brotherhood, I remember them. <laughs> and I mean, you know, we were also really into seaweed. Like mm -hmm. they, they were friends of ours. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's weird because we liked a lot of the grunge bands and stuff, like a lot of the boy bands or whatever too. Um, we just kind of sometimes felt like the lyrics didn't really speak to us. And it kind of just made us feel like, you know what? We have something to say too. And it probably, we have to have something better to say or more important to say. 
we might not know how to play these instruments or, you know, I don't know, make it sound professional, but, and the imagery, you know, a lot of the like kind of sub pop imagery was so sexist and, you know, just shock value bullshit, you know, that you're like, got tired. I was a little mm. tired. Yeah. Like it's, it's fascinating to me, like all this stuff, like you say, seaweed, like brotherhood, like obviously your, your Bratmobile, bikini kill, like it just, it's unending the stuff that was happening around this scene. And then, you know, the stuff that's take, you know, like talked about the most, the grunge stuff is to me, sometimes the most boring shit. Like, like there's just like, there's, why would you talk about this when there's like, you know, Melvin seven inches and fastbacks records you could be talking about. Oh, you bring up all the good bands. Yeah. Fastbacks. I still have like this, EP, you know, seven inch EP of theirs that I love so much. I love the fastbacks. Yeah. We interviewed them for one of our scenes one of our issues well they're like they're one of those bands that just never got bad and like how many bands can you say that about that were around from like 81 till like first 79 i think even they formed oh they might have yeah yeah i mean also with a voice like like kim's kim warnick yeah yeah like, oh, amazing um yeah i don't know yeah i was into a lot of that stuff and you're right we kind of seek out the women also in bands and stuff like that and pay attention to that but again i feel like a lot of that kind of deeper dive into music was happening once i graduated from high school where i just really really paid attention and we had calamity jane who was a local all-girl band um well they they actually are from oregon but they uh, were going to evergreen state college so they were playing around there um and bikini Kill, like kathleen well bikini Kill wasn't a band yet but Kathleen had moved to my town, I believe in 89, maybe 88, but I was an exchange student in Thailand for a year. So I was, I missed a year and that's when Nirvana became Nirvana with their name. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was funny when I came back to town, uh, summer, spring or summer of 89. And I was like, what happened to Skid Row? And everyone's talking about Nirvana. And I went to go see them downtown at the show and i'm like oh that's skid row and i'm like oh okay i missed the renaming whatever um so yeah lots of changes did you find any punk stuff going on in thailand when you were there no no at that time i mean i you know i, I was going to school all most of the time but i did try to find alternative culture and mostly it was the um fine arts uh the you know basically art students at the fine arts and arts university um so long-haired guys who were artists you know and and some women too and so i kind of hung around with them once i discovered them <laughs> but they were more kind of into heavy you know there's this heavy music thing with motorcycle dudes with long hair kind of but long hair guys having long hair then was really um subversive actually well I mean, I did go back to Thailand for another kind of like college study abroad quarter in, I I think it was, I don't know if it was nine, 92, maybe early 93. And I felt like by then, you know, like my ex-boyfriend, who was the art, long-haired art dude, <laughs> um, he had, you know, at least he'd heard about Nirvana <laughs> and mm -hmm. stuff, you know, they were talking about stuff like that. And then the last time I went, which was, I mean, quite a while ago, but still 2012 or something, um, actually the Black Lips played in Bangkok when I was there and I went to the show and I, I was just amazed. Cause I'm like, wow, the last time I was here, you, you wouldn't dream of doing like kind of alternative or punk or indie stuff, or I just didn't know how to find it at least. 
it's fascinating with like you you know you bring up the nirvana thing like that that seismic shift that they kind of had and i think the the availability of cds at that point and sort of like into the sort of internet age but they they are a band that you know it's like a global band brand from skid row to <laughs> to global entity it's amazing and but you know actually even when i was in thailand in like i'm just it was a long time you know 88 89 i um you know pirate tapes and stuff enabled me to discover a lot of new music like that's where i first heard the fall i think and i started collecting fall tapes but you know because they were like one or two dollars i mean they were bootlegs but they were one or two dollars and i could just you know look into all sorts of cool stuff i found so many cool bands and things and cool albums and i think thai fall bootlegs might be the new hot thing to collect because <laughs> well like one of the most expensive records is the sex pistols i think it's a jam split seven inch which is a bootleg that came out in thailand and that's like worth thousands and thousands of dollars now but those fall tapes are i don't know forget sub pop seven inches that's the ultimate collectible <laughs> oh man i wish i still had some of my sub, sub pop seven inches <laughs> I, I just would give them away and be like mm, i don't know i don't like this band whatever it, it, but it was it was amazing how and obviously some of them are still worth a fortune but the, it was like pokemon cards yeah <laughs> i had the smashing pumpkins one and i gave it to some girl i had a crush on well i know who that was but anyways <laughs> um because i'm like well i don't like them and she likes them whatever you know or i had the jack pepsi what was it i think tad. that was a cd i had the tad jack pepsi thing that they had to recall yeah yeah but, I think but it was a dickless yeah or yeah i had something but i think there was a cd too i don't know whatever it was and but also the but my another prize possession i have is dickless um the dickless 12 inch ep i also have the seven inch ep but i have the 12 inch it has an extra song on it mini skirt mob and um really undersung band i love that band i only have the seven inch version so you've, you've taught me with that 12 inch version of it yeah great band you know and i guess that's the other thing is like once you know 89 is such a huge year it seems for for music in that region and then post 89 it just is like a floodgate opens like 91 92 into like the 90s it's just like there's so many bands like it's, it's it seems like it would have been a flood to kind of come back to after being in thailand for that year yeah well i mean i spent most of the summer working <laughs> minimum wage jobs <laughs> trying to save money and they were just so ridiculous like i still you work all summer and you still have nothing to show for it but i was downtown all the time i was working downtown and just and then hanging out at my friend's group house you know the punk group house of girls after that and then we, we would just go to shows and stuff so yeah it was cool and I saw Viva Knievel, which was Kathleen's, I think, first band, but she was playing with them that summer, 89, in Olympia. And she was running um, a space, a venue, Reco Muse, um, that was really kind of an art venue, but they were having shows. And um, she would practice in there, too. So I saw her band practicing one day in there. I, maybe they were playing a show, but if it was, if it was a show, no one was there. Um, so I think it was a practice because yeah. I kind of just stumbled upon. I just heard noise coming out of there and I peeked my head in the door and and that made a big impression on me, you know, because it was just really like kind of in your face music. And it wasn't some girl trying to look cute or pretty or whatever. It was like, you know, screaming at the top of her lungs. 
was there much a scene in uh in Oregon at that point? Was there like I know um God, Osgood Slaughter and obviously Poison Idea from Portland, but uh was there like much of a scene going on? Well, I mean, yeah, in a way. I mean, I think you had like the Hell Cows um in Portland. Oh, yeah. And uh, in Eugene, they had um, like, well, some Velvet Sidewalk was from there, Oswald Five-O, um, but you know, it was kind of smaller stuff. Eugene was so hippie that eventually we were just like, okay, got to get out of here. The, the scene was small. Molly and I tried. <laughs> we met in the dorms and, and then we really tried to make stuff happen and stuff like that, but it was hard. <laughs> so. so I guess mo most of it was going back up to Olympia at this point for, for shows and things like that? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, but then at least by the early 90s, we were playing at the X-Ray Cafe in Portland. Um, we didn't really play at Satyricon. I guess, I mean, we were probably just barely of age. That was, you know, 21 and up. But X-Ray Cafe was the all ages place. Um, the guy from uh, Voodoo Donuts owned it. Trace, is that his name? And um, yeah, that was fun. Bratmobile played there a lot. New Bad Things, they were um, a Portland band that we would play with. Roger Nuzik was this weird dude who <laughs> everyone loved and we you know we'd wear like gold lame diapers or something i don't know <laughs> <laughs> probably a smegma connection in that band yeah maybe yeah and a cape yeah um, <laughs> but yeah so there was interesting stuff but but portland was a lot sleepier then and eugene just felt out of the way it was isolated um i enjoyed going to school there and i learned a lot there but I think, I don't think Molly liked it as much. And I think once we really were getting the band going and our fanzine and all this stuff, it was like, well, also we weren't gonna graduate because we would only take the classes we wanted to take, which were like political classes, but we weren't gonna take other requirements. So we're like, okay, we're out. And then we, <laughs> you know, and we knew Olympia was where we needed to be for the music scene and stuff that we were into and 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 being part of creating. and participating in so yeah we transferred to evergreen and moved to olympia it seems like it happens really quickly like once the demo is out like 1991 it's like a wild year what you accomplish with bratmobile yeah yeah because we were abandoned theory for a while like probably for a year at least and then all of a sudden we had this show set up well calvin called us and was like, hey, I got this show. It's like for Valentine's Day, 1991. You're going to be playing with Bikini Kill, who hadn't been a band for that long at that point, and Some Velvet Sidewalk. And we were like, what? No, we can't. And he's like, but what about your band? We're not a band. What? And he's like, well, you come up here bragging about your band all the time. So time to, you know, he called our bluff. <laughs> so then we were like, oh, fuck. Um, yeah. So then we... I don't know, we went to Oswald 5 um, Robert Christie from that band, and he loaned us the keys to his practice space. Um, they were, you know, Eugene band. And then I asked about, well, how do I write songs? And he's like, listen to the Ramones records, I guess. I don't know. And in my mind, I was like, well, I don't want us to sound like the Ramones. I want us to be different. So I'm never going to listen to the Ramones. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> to this day, I don't own any Ramones. Um, but as if as if we even had the skill to even sound like really anything but certainly <laughs> not the ramones um pretty funny but yeah molly bought a weird like galaxy 500 muscly car like late 60s one um to drive us up to our first show and 
we had like five, five songs that were kind of half acapella with, you know, switching between guitar and drums, Mollywood. She was really the instrument person. I think I tried to play guitar a bit on some songs, but I was mostly just singing. Um, you know, just, I remember the first time being on stage and just being like, wait a second, <laughs> are we a band? Are these songs, does this count? Um, we couldn't have done it without a supportive, super DIY scene like Olympia. Well, that's the thing that's amazing about punk is like, you know, as, it, as you can go up there and and fail and figure it out in front of your friends. And it is, you know, if, as long as it's a cool scene, it's an encouraging place to kind of do it. And even if it's a competitive scene, it does ultimately force you, I guess, to get more you know better at it and you can kind of get up there and and try it again even if you suck the first time at it yeah and we were lucky i mean we had examples like mecca normal mm -hmm. another canadian band vancouver um who were you know a duo and it was just like vocals and guitar and were amazing but you know they showed us that you could have different configurations and to make music it didn't have to be this full band or all these instruments or whatever you know yeah, and Mecca Normal's a band that gets I get I find they get more love out of America than they do out of Canada, weirdly. Like there's no there's no real celebration in Canada for a lot of these sort of incredibly important bands. Uh, it's too bad. Well, if I can ever get my podcast episodes out, I did a great interview with Gene Smith and David Lester from Mecca Normal and uh oh my god Gene is so funny. I just have to say that. So I, I can't wait to like work that one up and get that one out. So. And, and Dave's brother managed DOA, the infamous Ken Lester. Oh, maybe he, I probably mentioned that. Did he mention that? He better have mentioned that. But. And, and then also they have like a connection to the New Zealand flying nun stuff. Cause Peter Jennings Jenkins was, I'm probably screwing up the last name, but he was in Mecha normal for a while. And, and from kind of like that whole, you know, um, you know, that whole obviously Flying Nun sort of megaverse. Oh, man, I Flying Nun. You know, I do have to say I was in Dunedin one time in my life. I was in the South Island, Dunedin, New Zealand, and I was at a radio station and I was not told that the head of the station who was standing right there was from Look Blue Go Purple. Oh. And yeah, because these we were touring with this other guy band and they were doing their radio spot or whatever. They were doing a little interview on the radio and the rest of us were just hanging out in the other room. And OK, all I did was ask her for the you know Wi-Fi password. That's how we that's what we talked about. And then when we left, they're like, you know, you're really into Look Blue Go Purple. That was the lady from Look Blue Go Purple. And I was like, yeah, fuck you. Thanks for telling me, you know. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Like talk about a place that punk took. Like here's this energy that says to kids, go do it. And some of the greatest music ever. It's like a town of 100,000 people, Dunedin, right? Yeah, it's very much like Olympia. It's, it's beautiful, similarly, and it, yeah, it has a very similar vibe. I, mm. I loved it. I mean, actually, all of New Zealand really kind of, I mean, I didn't go everywhere, but, you know, it kind of reminded me of Washington State. A little dreary, <laughs> really kind of rainy and overcast, <laughs> but interesting stuff coming out of it. Oh, unbelievable stuff. Like, I'm I, when I was there, 
it was right around my birthday and my wife before I went was like, what do you want for your birthday? I'm like, just forgiveness when I get back because I'm going to buy my birthday gift over there and then some probably in records because, yeah, like you're saying with like like with Olympia, like you just put your, your hand into that stream and you're going to pull up some incredible record. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so 1992, you like wind up putting out some incredible records with unbelievable bands and splits and on, on cool labels. Is that from the demo or these connections you had already, like specifically put, you know, split with Brainiac and doing a record on Homestead? Oh yeah, I keep forgetting about all that. Yeah, you're right. We started off with a bunch of singles and things and a lot of splits. Um, we played some shows in New York City with um, Kicking Giant and Chia Pet. And we did, I think we actually did two shows in New York, like maybe six months to a year apart with the same lineups, oddly. Uh, maybe even at the same place. <laughs> but, is, this, um, is this when you were flown out for the Lunachick show? that You mentioned this in the letter that I have here. You say that you're going to get flown out to New York to play with the Lunachicks with Brad. Oh, my Mobile. God. I need you to, like, you have to scan that letter for me. I will <laughs> we're definitely. Trying I will... To piece, will you? Because we're trying to piece stuff together, and I have the worst memory ever. Um, it was before that. So this was early on. Um, but I remember doing those shows, and um, I... I guess we must have met Ken Katkin, who was um, at Homestead at the time. And he's like, hey, I want to put out a single of yours. So then I guess we were back in like Seattle and Olympia and recorded the songs like the Kiss and Ride um, 7-inch EP. So that was our first real release or whatever. Um, but you're right. Before that, we just had the demo tape. But I, I don't think I don't think it was the same songs. I don't Maybe? think so either. You know, it's, it's oh, Bradmobile. Bradmobile is what it's listed on Discogs. Like I've never seen a copy in person or anything, but just from, uh, you know, lusting after records on the internet, I've seen it on there. And um, yeah, I think it's a different recording session. Yeah. So yeah, I, it must be. Um, I think we started for the Kiss and Ride uh, 7 inch EP. We started at Seattle, like was it Conrad Uno at Egg Studio, maybe? And I, I think we kind of finished it with Pat Maley in Olympia. Um, bongos on Kiss and Ride. Anyways, um, <laughs> <laughs> so there was that. And then we did a split seven inch with Heavens to Betsy on K. And we did a split with Tiger Trap on Four Letter Words, which is Maz from the Mummies um, label. Oh, that's real. That's who. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, super cool. And it was like hand silk screened covers and stuff. Um, and then what else do? Oh, and you're right. We did. There's. I know there's more. We did the Brainiac one. So on our first tour across the country, which was summer of 92, we played us and Heavens to Betsy. We played with Brainiac in Dayton, Ohio. And we really loved that band. We were like, wow, they're great. Whatever. And we, I mean, I guess we exchanged info or something. But then by the end of the tour and whatever, but even I think it was the end of the summer, we ended up playing. Yeah, because we just like finished the tour in D.C. and then just stayed there. So I think we played our show at the end of the summer or something. But Brainiac showed up to that show. It was with us and, um, and Nation of Ulysses. And it was Heavens to Bessie, Bratmobile, Nation of Ulysses. And then Slant Six had just started and they jumped the bill. I remember that. They were, you know, great. What a and I know, right? That's and crazy, yeah. yeah, and then um, and Brainiac showed up, and I'm like, "What are you guys doing here?" But 
I should have realized they were huge Ulysses fans. Um, so, but I don't know. They asked us if we'd do a split seven inch with them. And they said that they had recorded the show we did together on a four track or the sound person had. And so we didn't really have to do anything. I just, I drew stick figures. I drew the cover or our side of the cover. <laughs> so I think that's, that's their first record too. Yeah, I think so. And it's really perfect in a way because it's BRA, BRA, you know, you, we get alphabetized next to each other anyway. So. Yes, exactly. It solves that dilemma when you're alphabetizing your splits. Yep. <laughs> it's it definitely much easier to alphabetize than the heaven of the Betsy split. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and also there's the uh, Neapolitan Metropolitan three, seven inch comp that you're on, which is the first appearance of the Foo Fighters under a different name, obviously. Oh, that's right. I remember before that came out, they were playing that song for me. And I was like, this sounds like Nirvana. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it does that one. Definitely. For Yeah, that's where he was at at that time. Just, you know, copying Kurt, I guess. But um, yeah, yeah, that was, I forgot about that. I think I definitely have that. I have that comp. I'm not, well, I don't even remember what songs we had on. Anyways. Um, yeah. So we had weird stuff here and there. Right. But then you know, at some point, well, we recorded with Tim Green from Nation of Ulysses and we recorded, I guess it was the summer of 91, I think, but the, oh, or was it 92? Might have been summer of 92. God, I can't remember. I think it comes out in 92. Um, I think all these things have. come out in 92. Like, that's the thing that's crazy is like, it's 1992, you put out a bunch of comps and a bunch of splits and also the Yo-Yo Records uh, comp comes out, but that's a CD. So I don't think it's as talked about as much, but that's an unbelievable list from Bikini Kill to Super Chunks on there. Courtney Love's got a song on there, weirdly too. It's it's like a wild comp. On which? Oh, on the um... uh, throw yo yo. Oh, okay. But you know Courtney Love. You know it's not Courtney Love. Courtney Love, right? Do you know? No. Okay, so Courtney Love was a band that Lois Maffeo and Pat Maley were in. And they named it Courtney Love. This was, it started before Courtney Love, the person, was well-known. So I think Lois had been roommates or something with Courtney Love. And but anyways, I think, you know, Courtney was a dynamic person and quite a character. And so I think that they made the band name just kind of like, you know, like, wow, there was this, this wild woman has this really cool name. And they probably never thought that she'd be famous one day or whatever. So it's funny. So they're... <laughs> And Lois's voice is beautiful. I think that music is beautiful. So there's a seven inch EP as well. Um, that's Courtney Love. It might on be on K somewhere. Records, I think, right? Yeah. And there's individual songs on comps, but yeah. it's not yeah. it's not <laughs> Courtney Love the person. It's it's a band. Yeah. Oh my God, you're blowing my mind right now. I'm like, wow, her voice is so different on this other stuff. And it would have been coming out the same time as Hole's first record. Yeah. No. Not, nothing like it. <laughs> I know, right? Because Lois's voice is quite beautiful. Yeah. Oh, no, it's great. Great stuff. You know, yeah. Fantastic fan. But no, you definitely have just turned the world on its head for me a little bit. But anyway, yeah, huge year for records that you do. And and obviously, you know, from Tiger Trap to having a Betsy going on to, you know, Sleater Kinney and everything. Like, there's just like, um, and Brainiac, of course, as well, and and even Dave Grohl. There's like a, 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 it's amazing. Like it's such a, it feels like such a huge year, monumental year. And I guess you're making that huge move from uh, Olympia to DC as well that year because that Neapolitan Metropolitan, you're a DC band by that point. Yeah, well, kind of. I mean, so 
In a way, yeah, because Molly grew up in, in Washington, D.C., and Aaron Smith, the guitarist, grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, right outside of D.C., so they they were D.C. I was in Olympia, but I would spend summers in D.C., so I spent the summer of 91 in D.C., summer of 92, also spring break of 91, and maybe spring break of 92, I don't know, but we were spending a lot of time there, or I was spending a lot of time there. But um, but I was still based in Olympia, and, and I think it took a while for me to graduate because I kept taking time off. So I still had to go back to Olympia to finish school until 94. And so I moved to D.C. for real, for real, like maybe at the very end of 94 or the very beginning of 95, something like that. But I was spending a lot of time there. Because by that point, Bikini Kills also relocated to D.C. too, right? Well, they um, did kind of move there, like, when they spent the summer. I think they lived there from, like, 91 to, through 92, maybe. I know they were there both summers and lived there throughout. But I think by 93, maybe they came back to Olympia. There was a lot of back and forth thing going on, so... Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it does feel like there's like a really strong connection between those two scenes, like the Olympia and sort of the 90s discord scene. Yeah. And I think a lot of it started with Calvin Johnson, because I believe he had one parent living in each place. So he was back and forth, I think, with school and stuff when he was maybe even in high school or something. So and I guess Molly, too. Right. Like there just seems like there's like sort of this. Uh, pipeline between the two places well yeah well she um because she grew up in dc and then went to college at university of oregon um but she was she wasn't really in the punk scene back i mean i think she was aware of it when she lived in dc like in high school but um she was actually more in the go-go scene there she'd go to go-go shows and oh wow stuff. yeah yeah she's yeah it was pretty amazing and um i think i kind of was the one who inter first introduced her to this like kind of k records diy stuff or whatever and what you kind of notice like as being in the two different places the difference between the dc scene versus the olympia scene around then because it seems like they would be at least on the surface kind of different places yeah i thought really different i mean i felt like by the time at least i was involved super involved with the olympia scene it was pretty female centered i think it was pretty mm -hmm. feminist and women centered and stuff like that and I think DC in some ways still felt kind of male centered or whatever. I mean, I know that's kind of overly gendered probably and, and too um, simplistic, but um, there were a lot of women in the DC scene who were doing stuff, who were in bands too. Like, well, you had Autoclave, you had Fire Party, you had Chalk Circle before that. Um, but, and then there was various women in bands, um, but a lot of women in the scene were also like writers, you know, made fanzines, um, put on shows, organized shows, um, did artwork and for the records and things like that, worked at record labels. Um, and so I think we have to remember that what what makes up a scene, it's not just the bands on stage. So so there are a lot of women involved, but I think we felt like there should be more visibility on stage as well. Yeah, like it feels like it would have been you know, just even the approaches to DIY, you know, like it feels like, uh, you know, and I, I wasn't there, obviously, but like it feels DC has sort of like a, not a hierarchy, but like a much more established kind of like framework. And it feels like Olympia was much more choose your own adventure kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was cool. I mean, I, I, I loved 
you know, both, I could think of both places as home, but especially growing up in Olympia is pretty insular town, you know, like with mm -hmm. the Evergreen mm -hmm. State College, real liberal and my family, of course, being super like, you know, lesbian, feminist, everything. Um, I wasn't really used to being around men that often. And I do have to say, once I moved to DC, it did feel like it became all about men or not all, but a lot more. <laughs> all of a sudden they were prominent in my life. And I, it was a little overwhelming at first, I think. Uh, one thing I, I definitely wanted to ask you about um, is the Metal Church collaboration. The song that you're on with Metal Church was, how did that come about? Because obviously Kurt Vandersloot is, uh, Vanderhoof, sorry, is from uh, Olympia and, you know, the lewd punk connection, but very cool, very like cool track, but how did that happen? It's so random, but actually I was excited about it because I think the first band that in my mind I considered grunge that I read about in The Rocket was Metal Church. And even though I know they're called Metal Church, I felt like that was at a time when we were having our own kind of metal rock that became grunge, you know, in the Northwest. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to me, they were like the first <laughs> grunge band, but I don't know. Um, but it was by then, um, we were friends with Joan Jett. Um, I, I forget exactly how we connected with Joan Jett, but um, she was in Seattle to maybe do some songwriting or record or something. And um, Joan and Kenny Laguna invited us up me and Kathleen up to Seattle to hang out. And so we went up there and just hanging out at Bad Animal Studio, which is Hart's um, studio. And uh, it was cool. And then Metal Church was in the studio at the same time. Maybe Kenny was, um, he might've been producing the record or something. And uh, he was like, hey, hey girls, I want you to come sing backups on this song. I think he just wanted to say that we were on the record. Um, so he had us do these kind of ooze or whatever leading into a song. And I remember we had to do the take several times because he kept saying, someone's flat. And I was like, I am sure it's me. I am sure it's me. But then, but then Kathleen's like, no, it's me. Um, I don't know if Joan would ever think it was her, but I'm sure it wasn't her because she, she knows how to sing. <laughs> so it is Kathleen. I'm sure it was me. Anyways. Well, I think, and I think Kurt from uh, Metal Church was Dale's first exposure to punk. So, you know, ultimately there is that deep grunge connection with that band as well. So uh, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's awesome. I know it's so funny, but I mean, it's weird. People ask me, wait, you were in metal church, right? And I was like, dude, I sang a few oohs and ahs before one song on a recording. <laughs> so anyways. <laughs> um, I, you know, you obviously have to talk about this all the time and I don't want to force you to talk about, but in terms of Riot Girl, did it surprise you how quickly people backlash to it within punk and that, that it came from a place that should have gotten it a lot more than they did. Like, I, I only say that because reading back on zines at the time, it seems like there was a lot of vitriol from a place where you just assume people would have understood or understood a lot more. Well, I think the backlash actually came from all sorts of places. And some of the stuff, the backlash that was in the beginning, the early days was mostly from guys in the punk scene. Like what, huh? you know, and then later feeling a little left out or something. 
um, or just feeling like their veganism was more important than, I don't know, sexism and racism. But anyways, um, <laughs> or dealing with those issues, right? But um, but then at some point, you're right, it started coming more from like other women or whatever. I mean, in a way, it just kind of ate itself. But I think that, you know, first of all, we didn't start with really clear goals necessarily, like, and you know, we we're young, we didn't know what we were doing. We're just like, yeah, this thing, whatever it is, you know, and um, just wanting to kind of create or a community and participate in a community that we wanted to see. Um, but, it, you know, was it perfect? No, did it really include everyone? No, whatever, you know, but we were just trying to push back against the sexism and punk, but also push back against the kind of academic aspect of feminism that didn't really speak to our everyday lives. Um, and we wanted a feminism that was updated, you know, like sex positive, sex worker positive. Um, also, you could be femi and, you know, wear makeup and a skirt and still be a feminist. You could be a stripper and still be a feminist, all these things, you know. Um, so it was kind of trying to find an intersection with that. Um, but yeah, I think that especially once the media came in, um, they really served to pit a lot of girls against each other. You know, a cat fight sells a story. Um, any women in music at the time, especially in the, in the Northwest, were put in the riot girl box and they didn't all like it and they didn't all respond well to that. Um, and... Yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of um, pressure was put upon, especially the singers in the bands, um, and that we were, you know, supposed to be the spokespeople, and we had to say everything just right and whatever. And so sometimes it was just even infighting within our own bands, you know, and people being upset that you said something wrong or upset that you're getting all the attention or whatever, you know, and then. Yeah, I don't know. I, and then it kind of became like people just trying to be like, well, who, who's having a harder time than who and whatever and just trying to tear each other down. I don't know. <laughs> it, it's amazing, though, how much it changed, right? Like I even when I was taking in, in university, you know, in women's studies class, learning about Riot Girl in class and having <laughs> how quickly it was became part of sort of the, you know, like, it, you know, ended up changing the thing that you were talking about wanting to change, you know, like here is an academia, academia, sorry. And we're talking about zines and how zines are legitimate forms of, of communication. And, and, you know, you, we could reference them in papers, you know, and, and things like that. It was, it, it's wild how something that started so small and it's, and you're right, because people generalize so much, like it's a genre of music. Now people talk about Riot Girl, like Team Dretch sounds anything like Bratmobile sounds anything like the Huggy Bear, like none of these bands sound anything alike, so how can it be a genre? But it it is like this sort of like as big as punk seismic shift that happens. Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's more like kind of a loose-knit community. But you're right, it's funny how often we get put into this genre that you're right, none of the bands sound alike. No, it's wild. <laughs> like it's like, like Heaven to Betsy sounds like any of these, like it's just so, what is Riot Girl? But it's, I guess that's the thing people do and they're doing it right away with punk too you know like trying to find what this thing was and you see it with power violence and and hardline and all these sorts of things that came out of the 90s but obviously nothing as big as as riot girl like riot girl is 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 so huge like it just changed it changed culture 
it's so wild because if you would have told us that while we were in it, we didn't quite understand that. I mean, it was big, but it was big to us and it was big in our lives and we were networking quite a bit, but I never, ever, ever would have thought or guessed that it would be part of academic discourse or something, Yeah, you know? I mean, cause we were still like, even in our women's studies classes, you know, if we use the word girl, sometimes other classmates would be woman, they'd correct us and be like, well, what about the lives of young girls? Like, wh why is it, why aren't they valid? What about teen bedroom culture? What about girly shit? You know, why isn't that considered important or valid or feminist? You know, well, in these zines is sort of like honest documentations of people's experiences uh, that were otherwise shut out of traditional spaces. You know, like they're invaluable. Like, and 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 these things. You know, I, I was talking to Michelle from Conflict. And she's like, I hope you're preserving your zines. And I'm like, oh, you're talking to the right person about this thing. Like, I'm a nerd about this sort of stuff. But, you know, she was saying it. And it's true. Like, when these things disappear, like, a lot of times, these were people's only chances to get their voices heard. And, and there was runs of, like, well, God, we know how hard it is to put a zine together at Kinko's. Like, runs of 25 in some cases. <laughs> yeah. Or all the tricks, right? You know, like. <sighs> Dropping the key card. Yes, that counter I love yes. I think I still might have the box counter somewhere but you know what I would do is I would grab two and then I would do most of my copies on one and then ditch it in a corner somewhere and then take one that just had a lot less and then I go take that to the counter and pay for it the or magnets if you had a really strong magnet it would set it to zero <laughs> yeah and then there was also the Kinko scam cards because you know obviously punks were some of the first kids to have access to these sort of computers where they could do this sort of stuff but they would you know put hundreds or thousands of dollars on a kinko card and you could just go in and get all your copies for free but there was a rumor in philadelphia of a well-known punk rocker that worked at kinko's who was the kinko's punk rock cop and he would narc on you what that's the rumor. Oh, no. Was <laughs> yeah. it because he didn't like your zine or what? <laughs> I guess. I guess, you know, the, the Kinko's Corporation, it was, uh, you know, and it was right, ultimately. They're all out of business. So maybe maybe we stole too many copies. <laughs> too bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rest in peace. Um, but it was, you're like, it was frustrating putting these things together. Like, putting a zine together wasn't like doing a podcast. Like, it took me f years to do zines. Yeah, true. Although I think doing podcasts is harder, but I'm also super nitpicky. I'm just like, I cut out every, um, every, like you wouldn't believe it. And <laughs> I, I don't know. I take forever. I'm slow. I, I definitely, yeah. Feel that obsessive need to, I don't know. Cause like, once again, you feel like you're preserving culture. You feel like the, the, the stuff that you're covering is worthy of that effort to be put in. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. It's definitely hard. Uh, this has been unbelievable. And I got to say, I don't want to keep you all night, but anytime you want to come back on this podcast, you know, the door is always open. Oh, thank you. I've always, I've really wanted to be on it for a long time. I'm so excited, you know, when I even first heard about it and stuff. So well, and Toby it, highly recommended you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, in addition to, you know, Bratmobile and all of your amazing bands, you're in a plethora of unbelievable groups to this day. But uh, also you're doing uh, background hooting and hollering on one of my favorite recordings ever, Danko Jones, Move On. Oh. Have you heard that? 
I don't even know. <laughs> am I? He said I it love, was on. Am I? I love. Yeah. By the oh, way. he's the best. He's the best. I'm going to have to beep that name. That's going to have to. <laughs> oh, because he won't allow it. Can't okay, I. I love Danko. <laughs> Are you out there, Danko? <laughs> he is. He is definitely going to listen. I promise you that because uh, he has been very excited about this happening as well. And Aww. yeah, like uh, you know, another thing that's really cool is finding out about that connection of of you know yourself to Toronto and and another sort of uh, sort of legend. I think Danko Jones very much appreciated, but the punk rock side of Danko Jones is underappreciated. Yeah, I mean, but Danko Jones used to play in D.C. a lot, especially around the time when I was in my second band, Cold Cold Hearts, and we used to play shows with them. We, I, I think we've done like mini tour and stuff with them, and and I'm still friends with um, Danko, and um, I also appeared on his podcast um, one, I mean, it was several years ago, but um, so my twin sister, Cindy, uh, lives in Toronto, so he came over to her house and recorded it, and that was fun. He also came to our birthday party that was a few days before. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was a member of the Black Coffee Brigade, his podcast uh, family for a while, too. And he, uh, I keep trying to get him to bring it back. I'm like, I loved your podcast. I want you, I want you to bring it back. But he is, uh, I think, retired it for the time being. Oh, really? Yeah. I need to, he needs to give me his microphone, though. He was showing me the most amazing microphones. And I'm like, oh, I, I need this for a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay, tell, tell him to give me his mic. <laughs> I will. If he's retired, he's got to hang up his mics and pass it on, do the punk rock thing with the microphone. But I know. I, don't know. I think that would be admitting yeah. that it's completely over. So hopefully, you know, hopefully he holds on to the microphone a little bit longer. But um, <laughs> it's, it's wild, though, like how this sort of technology has changed everything too right like the idea of like you do a zine and it would maybe trickle out and years later you can see maybe some some are held on to to this idea that we can preserve this culture ourselves and we can disseminate this culture ourselves granted now through a giant corporation but we were doing it with kinkos anyway back then i guess yeah totally i mean yeah well i mean even like with my podcast i was i did i'm in the band is what it's called for a year with title the streaming service it was like my job i mean i mm -hmm. also had a partner um jonathan shiflett who's amazing um audio producer um so we worked together on that um now i'm on my own and i'm about to relaunch it um but, but i'm just gonna do it on my own website um just because just to kind of keep it that way you know what i mean like i don't know yeah <laughs> plus i i don't know i'm worried i don't do it real above board so i gotta stay under the radar a little bit <laughs> No, no, now we have Mr. Beast to look up to. Mr. Beast is our our Ian Mackay now. Like, do you know Mr. Beast? <laughs> no. Oh, Mr. Beast. People hate when I talk about this on the podcast, but Mr. Beast is a a YouTuber who started doing his own YouTube show and is the most uh, watched person in the world, uh, at least on YouTube. Yeah, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. And he's famous for, I think he might have played Minecraft at some point, uh, but oh. he, he now is famous for giving away his money. He cured 2,000 people of their blindness recently by paying for surgeries for them. Or, But anyway, he is wow. just sort of like self-contained entity that now has chocolate bars and all this sort of stuff, but taking DIY to the most extreme level possible. 
Oh my God. Okay. Well, maybe I got to learn how to do that. <laughs> this could be it. This could be this pass. The wolf is the new beast. I know. <laughs> well, this is, it's, yeah, it's going to be a year. Well, also, uh, Bratmobile's playing together again. I'm very uh, excited about that. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a version of Bratmobile. Um, sadly, it's not, it's without our um, guitarist, Aaron Smith, um, at this point right now. But yeah, we're going to play Mosswood Meltdown. And I'm excited for that. Very nervous, though. Lots of practicing to be done. So. But it's it's kind of amazing, like, the world you're coming back to in terms of a, a band. Like, where, like, I think, well, I don't want to speak for you, but I think, like, the, the world since Bratmobile stopped playing has changed so much, music-wise. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see if they can still deal with us. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's caught up to you is what I'm saying. I don't mean it's oh, like okay. passed you by. I didn't mean like that. No, sorry. That might have came out awkwardly on my part. I apologize. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I just wonder, you know, but, um, but I think there's been a lot of excitement, especially from people who are young enough where they never got to see us before. Cause you know, we, we were around in the early nineties and then we were broken up for like four years. And then we were around again in the late 90s, early aughts, and then broken mm -hmm. up, you know, so we've had a few runs. Um, so, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Like you were at Lookout towards the end of Lookout Records, right? Like the, the. Yeah, when we got back together, we did end up putting our last two records on Lookout. Yeah. Um, but actually, all of that now is going to be re-released on Kill Rock Stars. Oh, that's awesome. Like feels all under one place now. One roof. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's also felt like Lookout Records at that point must have been a weird place to be, you know, like in terms of being at a label, because it felt like it got so big, expanded. But this is like, as it's, I guess, struggling at this point, right? Like, ultimately, everyone got their records back. Yeah, yeah, I think it probably, yeah, maybe their kind of eyes got too big or something. I don't know. But like, um, I don't know exactly what happened. But um but, you know, it was interesting, too, because, like, Ted Leo was on Lookout, the Donnas um, at this time, and Mary Timoney. And there was some interesting stuff on there, actually. Peachies, too, right around then, too? Yeah, and, like, what was it? Black Cat Music. I liked that band. Um, and, and of course, way earlier on, there was Blatz, one of my all-time favorite bands. So. Yeah, I just saw Jesse the oh, other yeah? day. Yeah, Jesse lives in England now. He, we, no way. But we had some fun times together back in the day and um, he was really fun and funny. And yeah, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's such an incredible label. Look at records like from operation Ivy, obviously to crim shrine to the stuff that was coming out towards the end. Like I, I've, I didn't end well, but in terms of like this consistency of that label, like it consistently was putting out interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, next time you want to come on here and talk about any of this stuff, Allison, you are always welcome. Thank you for the zines, the band, and, and your time. Oh, thank you, too. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really great. Thank you, Allison, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Allison can come back whenever she wants because that was a lot of fun. Maybe with Tango Jones next time. We'll do a splits or something. Anyway, I'm just brainstorming thinking out loud. But one thing I do definitely know is that on the next episode of Turn Out a Punk, in addition to those announcements I was talking about at the top of the show, from the band Jesus Peace, formerly of the band Nothing, Aaron Hurd is on the show. And this is a very fun conversation. 
uh, between just just two dads reflecting and, and lamenting the state of the world. You'll hear it. And so it's a fun one. And that is on the next episode of this show. Well, that is it, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Everyone, everyone, everyone. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights and stop people from trying to put their hands in other people's reproductive choices and and interfering. And, and I'm saying this as someone in Canada very scared at what's kind of on the horizon up here and also looking at what's happening in America right now. And my thoughts are with anyone who is having to deal with this shit. Uh, get involved. If there's organizations in your community that are affecting positive change, get involved and, and try and help make some of that positive change happen. It'll help you feel better. Donate your time, your your money if they need it or if you have it. And, uh, you know, just, just be be a voice. Speaking of being a voice, start a band, start a fanzine, maybe even start a podcast. Because anyone can do this shit. Make your own culture. Get yourself... Uh, create a creative outlet. Just find something. Draw a picture. You don't have to show anyone. You know, maybe make it a flyer. Maybe make it a flyer. Who knows? You know, once again, this is a culture based on participation. So participate in it and uh, make the culture you want to see. Uh, speaking of making a difference in the world, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you do not need them and they can change someone's life, literally change their life. I've seen it happen. I've seen it. I've seen the miracles happen right before my eyes. Speaking of seeing things happen, try meditating because I've seen it uh, have positive effects on my life and maybe it'll have positive effects on yours. So uh, try it. All right, that is it. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I will see you on the next episode. Stay safe. Bye.